14. RN of true religion. There is a revival, and the gospel expands its wings and prepares for a new flight. It is worthy of remembrance that the year 1792, the very year of the French Revolution, was also the year when the Baptist Missionary Society was formed, a society which was followed during the succeeding, and they the worst, years of the Revolution, with new societies of unwanted energy and union, all aiming, and aiming successfully, at the propagation of the Gospel of Christ, both at home and abroad. What withering contempt did the great head of the Church thus pour upon the schemes of infidels? And how did he arouse the careless and instruct his own people, by alarming providences, at a season when they greatly needed such a stimulus? Historical Sketches of the Protestant Church in France. Page 522. Another writer, Dr. D. L. Leonard, historian of the century of missions, says, The closing years of the 18th century constitute in the history of Protestant missions an epoch indeed, since they witnessed nothing less than a revolution, a renaissance an effectual and manifold ending of the old, a substantial inauguration of the new. It was then that for the first time since the apostolic period, occurred an outburst of general missionary zeal and activity. Beginning in Great Britain, it soon spread to the continent and across the Atlantic. It was no mere push of fervor, but a mighty tide set in which from that day to this has been steadily rising and spreading. A hundred years of missions. Page 69. The time of the prophecy had come and the hand of providence was bringing into being agencies that have spread light and knowledge over all lands. Look where the missionaries' feet have trod flowers in the desert bloom, and fields, for God, are white to harvest. Skeptics may ignore, yet on the conquering word, from shore to shore, like flaming chariot, rolls, ask ocean isles, and plains of Ind, where ceaseless summer smiles, speak to far frozen wastes, where winter's blight remains, they tell the love, Attest the might of him whose messengers across the wave to them salvation bore. Hope. Freedom gave. Horace D. Woolley. The organization of foreign missionary enterprise was quickly accompanied by the establishment of Bible societies for a systematic work of translating and worldwide distribution of the scriptures. In 1804 the British and Foreign Bible Society was organized. Students of the prophetic word felt at the time that these agencies were coming in fulfillment of the prophecy. One writer of those times said, the stupendous endeavors of one gigantic community to convey the scriptures in every language to every part of the globe may well deserve to be considered as an eminent sign even of these eventful times. Unless I be much mistaken, such endeavors are preparatory to the final grand diffusion of Christianity, which is the theme of so many inspired prophets, and which cannot be very far distant in the present day. G.S. Faber, D.D., Dissertation on the Prophecies, Volume I.I page 4061844. Now the word of God, in whole or in part, is speaking in more than 500 languages, and it is estimated that these tongues, at least in their spoken form, can make the divine message comprehensible to 95% of the inhabitants of the earth. The work of modern missions, that had its birth as the time of the end came, is one of the great world factors today. Nearly $30 million a year are given for Protestant missions and a force of more than 20,000 foreign missionaries is in the field, not counting the many thousands of native missionaries and helpers. Truly the time of the end is proving to be an era of increasing light and knowledge. The opening of all lands as the time came for knowledge to be increased, it was necessary that all lands should be open to receive the enlightening agencies. Thus, as the time of the end came, we see distinctly the hand of providence swinging open the doors into all countries. 
It has been an era of world survey and development, particularly is this true of the last 60 or 70 years. It was in 1844 that the time referred to in the prophecy came for the special advent movement, bearing the judgment our message to the world. The range of the movement is thus described in the prophecy, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. Ref. 14.6. This was a declaration that as the time came for the closing gospel work to be done, the doors of access to every nation and tongue and people would be thrown open, in 1844, or but a few years before. Much of the world was closed to missionary endeavor, but as the prophecy indicates, the years following have witnessed the swift and systematic opening of all lands to the gospel message. It was in 1842 that five treaty ports in China were opened to commerce and to missions, advanced steps in the opening of all China to the gospel. In 1844 Turkey was prevailed upon to recognize the right of Muslims to become Christians, reversing all Muslim tradition. In 1844 Alan Gardiner established the South American Mission. In 1845 Livingstone's determination was formed to open up the African interior. Dr. A.T. Pearson, speaking of the wonderful way in which Providence opened the doors of access in those times, wrote as follows, Most countries shut out Christian missions by organized opposition, so that to attempt to bear the good tidings was simply to dare death for Christ's sake. The only welcome awaiting God's messengers was that of cannibal ovens merciless prisons, or martyr graves, but, as the little band advanced, on every hand the walls of Jericho fell, and the iron gates opened of their own accord, India, Siam, Burma, China, Japan, Turkey, Africa, Mexico, South America, the Papal States, and Korea were successively and successfully entered, within five years, from 1853 to 1858. New facilities were given to the entrance and occupation of seven different countries, together embracing half the world's population. Modern Mission Century. Page 25. God's providence has laid under tribute every force and every resource for the opening of all lands missionary endeavor, love of adventure, commercial enterprise, and scientific interest. Railways have been built through regions that were undiscovered 70 years ago and among the passengers traveling now over the Iron Trail are men and women of tribes unknown 50 years ago. But the gospel message was to go to every tribe and tongue before the end, and wonderfully Providence has been opening the doors throughout all this time of the end, and particularly in our generation. Material agencies for the work the prophecy represents not only a worldwide work, but a quick work in proclaiming the gospel message in the last days. The movement is symbolized in the revelation by an angel flying in the midst of heaven, from land to a land, and as to the closing work, when the end is near at hand, the scripture says, he will finish the work, and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Rom. 9.28 Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This is the hope for a quickly finished work in all the earth in our time. Yet the Lord lays hold of material things for service, and wonderfully the hand of providence has wrought in bringing into existence material agencies for a quick work in carrying the gospel to the world such agencies as no generation before ours ever had. Consider the marvelous facilities for world travel. They are the product of this time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, said the prophecy. Some interpreters have restricted the Hebrew phrase to a searching to and fro for knowledge. Even this would include a literal running to and fro, 
for the light of increasing knowledge was to be diffused over all the earth. But the best authority on the Hebrew declares for the plain meaning of our English translation, many shall run to and fro. Into recent works, Dr. C. H. H. Wright, the English scholar, says of this text, the natural meaning must be upheld, i.e. wandering to and fro. Critical commentary on Daniel, page 209. Why should not that expression be used in the sense in which it is employed in Jeremiah 5 colon 1, namely, of rapid movement hither and thither, Daniel and his prophecies, page 321, at the time when the first foreign missionary movement was being launched in America, Robert Fulton's steamship, the Clermont, was making its first trip on the Hudson, in 1838 the first ships to cross the Atlantic under steam power alone the Sirius and the Great Western came into New York from Liverpool, a few hours apart, foreigners of the fleets that furrow all the seas today, making quick pathways for the gospel messengers to all lands, verily, they are a gift of God's providence to this generation, when all the world is to hear the gospel message, he hath made the deep as dry, he hath smote for us a pathway to the ends of all the earth, in 1825 Stevenson built his first railway passenger locomotive, which may still be seen in the Darlington Railway Station, in England, it was the beginning of the great revolution in land travel, the late Professor Alfred Russell Wallace, scientist, wrote, from the earliest historic and even prehistoric times till the construction of our great railways in the second quarter of the present century the 19th, there had been absolutely no change in the methods of human locomotion, the wonderful century, page 7, illustration, Manuscript writing the process by which the books of the great library of Alexandria, Egypt, were made. For nearly 6,000 years men had traveled in the old way. Why should these revolutionary changes in travel by sea and land come abruptly just at this time? Because the time foretold in the prophecy was at hand, when the last gospel message was to be carried quickly to all the world, to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. We see the hand of the living God opening the doors into all lands, and his wonderful providence laying at the feet of this generation agencies for quickly covering the whole earth. Illustration, GUDNBRG's first types reproduced from the first edition of the famous 42-line Latin Bible, printed by Gutenberg. Later came the electric telegraph, for the quick transmission of news. It was in 1837 that Cook and Wheatstone in England, and Morse in the United States made their application for patents on the electric telegraph. It was in 1844 that the first long-distance system was successfully demonstrated when the historic message was sent from Baltimore to Washington. What hath God wrought? Now news of events fulfilling prophecy, and news of progress and conditions in all lands, are daily spread before the world by this agency of our wonderful time. As the closing events take place, The Lord has in his providence so ordered it that no one need be ignorant of the signs of the times fulfilling before the eyes of men. Speak the word and think the thought. Quick tease as with lightning caught over, under, lands or seas to the far antipodes. Here is an incident illustrating the way in which the electric telegraph may multiply and spread abroad the witness born to the truth of God in some obscure corner of the earth. Illustration, the whole double press the largest printing press in the world. Length, 48 feet height, 1912 feet, weight, 175 tons, number of parts, 65.000, revolutions, 300 per minute, paper used per hour, 18 tons, or 216 miles of paper 3 feet wide, production per hour, 300.0008 page folded newspapers, 
the mighty press, when old Gutenberg, inventor of the printing press, and mentor of the clumsy-fingered typos in a sleepy German town, used to spread the sheets of vellum on the form, and plainly tell them that the art was then perfected, as he pressed the plan down, he had not the faintest notion of the rhythmical commotion, of the brabble and the clamor and the unremitting roar of the mighty triple-decker, while the steel rods flicker, and the papers, ready folded, fall in thousands to the floor. Some years ago a young man in Europe a Seventh-day Adventist was giving answer for his faith. His conscience would not allow him to do ordinary labor on God's holy Sabbath. He had declared to the court that the oath of loyalty which had been required of him forbade his breaking the Sabbath. How is that? asked the judge. The young man replied, I was sworn in with a Christian oath, and therefore cannot be under an obligation to violate the commandments of God and work on the Sabbath. One must regard God as the highest authority, and obey Him in the first place. This witness was born in a little courtroom, before a small group of men, but the press dispatches took it up, and the description of the scene and report of the words spoken were carried by electric telegraph to the press of at least four continents, and millions read the testimony of the young man to the faith that was in him. In the days to come, with great events taking place and solemn issues calling upon men to make decision for God and His truth, how quickly, in some great crisis, all the world may be warned, and the last individual decisions be made for eternity. Modern printing the invention of the printer's art had come just in time to give wings to a reformation truth. Luther said of it, printing is the latest and greatest gift by which God enables us to advance the things of the gospel. It is the last bright flame, manifesting itself just previous to the extinction of the world. Thanks be to God, it came before the last day came. Michelet's Life of Luther Page 291. While improvements in the art were made through the centuries, it was a slow process, even up to the opening of our generation, during our day. However, inventions have revolutionized the printing process. In this, as in other things, the methods have been speeded up to meet the necessities of this time of rapid accomplishment. The printing press is one of the chief of the marvelous enlightening agencies of this time of the end. By it the printed pages of truth are set falling over the earth, like the leaves of autumn. Time fails us to speak of all the wonderful material developments of our day, when knowledge has been increased, and when men are not only searching to and fro, but literally running to and fro. The whole earth is brought within the range of human knowledge, and the light of saving truth is streaming out toward every dark place where the children of men dwell. Nearly 2,500 years ago it was written upon the prophetic page. Shut up the words, and seal the book. Even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. There the word stood on the scroll of prophecy through more than two millenniums. Then, as the time of the end came, lo, the book of prophecy was unsealed, and the new era of increasing knowledge began to spread in wondrous blessing over the earth. So surely, also, the prophecies of the last events will be accomplished, in the occurrences taking place before our eyes. We see that God is indeed finishing His work in the earth, and cutting it short in righteousness. Footnotes, J. It is not designed to give the reader the idea that this running, to and fro, refers wholly to turning to and fro through the pages of a book. The times in which we live have been characterized by a great increase in Bible study, and consequently in knowledge of the scriptures, but it is equally true that this has been due in large measure to the fact that there are no longer any, hermit, kingdoms, travel. A real physical running, to and fro, through the earth, has contributed mightily to the modern increase of knowledge, and in no other field of investigation has this been more true than in the study of the Bible. 
by increased facilities for travel, all nations have been brought close together physically, different races and nationalities have become acquainted, missionary zeal has been quickened, and peoples formerly beyond the reach of missionary operations have become easily accessible, in the sense, as well as by private searching of the scriptures, knowledge has increased, illustration, the mosque of street Sophia in Constantinople the most famous of all Mohammedan temples, copyright by Underwood and Underwood, NY. The Eastern Question Modern History In the light of ancient prophecy not alone of the history of ancient nations does the sure word of prophecy bear witness. Political events of our own and coming days are described. The nations of the latter day are pictured as preparing war, gathering their forces for the great Armageddon, the battle of the day of God, as a signal of the last great struggle, the fall, or drying up, of the power ruling the territory watered by the river Euphrates is foretold. Ref. 1612. The Euphrates in all modern history has been suggestive of the dominions of the Turkish or Ottoman Empire, and Armageddon, designated as the meeting place of armies in the last clash of nations, is in Palestine, which, through all modern times, has been in possession of the Turkish power, the index finger of prophecy points, therefore, to this region of the eastern Mediterranean as the pivotal point in the closing history of nations, and with Turkey's fate is wrapped up the fate of all the nations of the world. All this adds deepest and most solemn import to the study of what is known as the Eastern Question, a question that has been to the fore in international politics much of the time throughout this generation. Wars have been fought over it, cabinets have wrestled with it, and still it holds its place in the first rank of living issues of today. As everyone knows, the Eastern Question involves the dominion or supremacy in the Near East. This region was a pivotal point in the struggles of the nations in ancient times the meeting place of East and West. Maspero, historian of ancient empires, says of it, some countries seem destined from their origin to become the battlefields of the contending nations, the nations around are eager for the possession of a country thus situated, from remote antiquity Syria was in the condition just described, by its position it formed a kind of meeting place, where most of the military nations of the ancient world were bound sooner or later to come violently into collision, struggle of the nations, chap, 1, it is not strange, Therefore, that one of the great outlines of historic prophecy should deal with events centering around this pivotal region, the prophecy of Daniel 11 does so, outlining the course of history from ancient times to the final solution of the Eastern question amid the scenes of the end, rise and fall of ancient empires the prophetic outline of Daniel 11 begins with Persia, in the third year of Cyrus, the conqueror of Babylon, see Dan, 10 1, the angel of God appeared to Daniel and in the longest and most detailed single prophecy in all the Bible, told the story of events connected with this region of the Near East for the centuries to come, until the end, putting the word of prophecy and the record of history side by side, we see how exactly history has fulfilled prophecy, and we may know certainly that the brief portion of the prophecy yet unfulfilled will surely come to pass. Persia prophecy, now will I show thee the truth, behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Dan. 11 colon to history. The three kings following Cyrus were one Cambyses, two Smyrtes, three Darius, the fourth, Xerxes, was far richer than they all. He had the treasures of his father, Darius, who was called the merchant, or hoarder, by his own people, and Xerxes gathered stores of wealth in addition. When Xerxes was on his way to invade Grecia, 
a Lydian named Pitiris entertained the whole Persian army with feasts, and offered to aid in bearing the expense of the campaign. Xerxes asked who this man of such wealth was. He was answered, This is the man, O king, who gave thy father Darius the golden plane tree, and likewise the golden vine, and he is still the wealthiest man we know of in all the world, excepting me. Herodotus, Book 7, Part 27, Richer than they all, Xerxes, through his riches, was able, as the prophecy had foretold, to stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Forty-nine nations marched under his banners to the attack. The Greek poet, Aeschylus, who himself fought against the Persians, wrote of Xerxes' mighty host, and myriad people Dejas king, a bad leaguer lord, from utmost east to utmost west sped on his countless horde, in a numbered squadrons marching, in fleets of keels and hold, knowing none dared disobey. For stern overseers were they of the godlike king begotten of the ancient race of gold. Percy. Way's translation. Xerxes boasted that he was leading the whole race of mankind to the destruction of Greece. But his invasion ended in the total rout of his forces by land and by sea. It was an advertisement to the world that Persia's might was broken. The prophecy treats it so. And deals no further with Persian history. Aeschylus at the time celebrated the passing of Persia's prestige in the lines. With sacred awe the Persian law no more shall Asia's realms revere, to their lord's hand at his command, no more the exacted tribute there, before the Ionian squadrons Persia flies, or sinks engulfed beneath the main, fallen, fallen, is her imperial power, and conquest on her banners waits no more, Percy, Potter's translation, the next great world change was to be the rise of Grecia to dominion, so, although a number of kings followed Xerxes in Persia, the prophecy passes from his disastrous invasion directly to the coming of Grecia under its mighty king, Alexander the Great. Grecia prophecy, a mighty king shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will, and when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity. Dan. 11 colon 3. 4. History. Alexander the Great stood up and ruled with great dominion over a kingdom stretching from India to Grecia, with kings yet farther west sending embassies to Babylon to make submission, but in the height of his power, as the prophecy suggests, he was suddenly cut down by death, all his posterity perished, and out of the struggles of his generals for supremacy came 301 BC the division of the empire toward the four winds, as the prophecy had declared so long before. Rawlinson, the historian, says, a quadripartite division of Alexander's dominion was recognized, Macedonia west, Egypt south, Asia minor north, and Syria stretching eastward beyond the Euphrates. Sixth Monarchy. Chap. 3. The kings of the north and south next. A rearrangement of these powers is noted, and it is this that gives us the key to the study of the closing portion of the long prophetic outline dealing with events of our own day. The narrative continues, Prophecy. The king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes, shall be strong above him. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Verse 5. History. The history testifies that the king of the South Egypt, under Ptolemy was strong, but one of the four princes was, strong above him. Seleucus, of Syria and the East, pushed his dominion northward, subduing most of Asia Minor, and extending his boundary into Thrace. On the European side, beyond the Dardanelles, henceforward, as Mahafi says, there were three great kingdoms Macedonia, Egypt, Syria which lasted, each under its own dynasty, till Rome swallowed them up, Alexander's empire, 
Page 89. Thus Seleucus took the territory of the north, and the Syrian power became king of the north, its empire extending from Thrace, in Europe, through Asia Minor to Syria and the Euphrates. The seat of empire was removed from the east, and Antioch, in northern Syria, once the third city of the world, became the famous capital. The prophecy next foretold in remarkable detail the contests between these two strong powers, the king of the north Syria and Asia Minor and the king of the south Egypt. The conflict raged back and forth till the coming of the Romans. The Holy Land was the frequent meeting place of the contending armies. The Encyclopedia Britannica describes it, Palestine was as of old the battlefield for the king of the north and the king of the south. The history of these times is lost in its details. Ninth edition. Volume XV. Art. Macedonian Empire. Page 144. We shall not follow the details of this contest as foretold in the prophecy, nor yet the outline of events after the coming of the Roman power ended the rivalry between Syria and Egypt. It is necessary only that we fix the events and geographic terms of this early portion of the prophecy. Then we shall have the key to the closing portion, dealing with events of the last days, when the King of the North again appears. The modern king of the north in the last verses of the chapter we find the king of the north the chief factor in the same region, at the time of the end, verse 40, and we are told that when this power comes to its end, it is the signal that the great day of God is at hand, see Dan, 12 colon 1, it becomes a vital question, therefore, what power in these last days is the king of the north, whose end is the signal of the swift ending of the world, inspiration gives the basis for the answer. The king of the north in the early portion of the prophecy was the power that ruled in Syria and Asia Minor, from the Euphrates to the shores of the Dardanelles, the king of the north, then, of the later portion of the prophecy, must be the power that has been ruling in the same region during the time of the end, while power has held dominion over this territory in modern times, the Turkish or Ottoman Empire, at this time Turkey holds almost the identical dominion of the ancient king of the north from the Euphrates to the sea and northward over Asia Minor and the shores of the Dardanelles. Then today Turkey is certainly the king of the north, according to the prophecy of Daniel 11, of the later history of the king of the north and his end and the events following it. The prophecy says, Tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy, and utterly to make away many, and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, Dan, 1144, 45, 12 colon 1, illustration, city of Constantinople the capital of the Turkish government, copyright by Underwood and Underwood, and why the opening verse of the scripture describes exactly the history of Turkey in modern times. Turkey's disquietude has come because of tidings out of the east and out of the north. In both these directions there has been a pushing back of the Turkish frontier, particularly in the north, again and again. During this time of the end, Turkey has gone forth with fury to resist these encroachments and prevent the loss of territory. The prophecy indicates that in some of these struggles the king of the north will yet transfer his capital, he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Removal to Jerusalem this prophecy can mean nothing else than that the king of the north will eventually set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the holy mountain of the scriptures. 
Zek. 8 colon 3. It is a wise counsel that says, tread lightly in the details of unfulfilled prophecy. Just how events are to turn. By what route or processes the steps are to be taken. It is useless to conjecture. But there the prophecy stands. Every word of the early portion of the prophetic outline has been fulfilled to the letter in the history of the ancient empires battling century after century over this region. Every word spoken of the final scenes will as certainly be fulfilled, in view of this prophecy, that Jerusalem is yet to be made the headquarters of the King of the North. It becomes highly significant that the Mohammedans regard Jerusalem as a sacred city. According to Mohammedan tradition, Jerusalem is to play a leading part in the closing history of that people. Hughes, in his Dictionary of Islam, article, Jerusalem, summarizes the teaching, in the last days there will be a general flight to Jerusalem. Speaking of Jerusalem, an old Arab commentator on the Koran, Mukadasi AD 985, said, as to the excellence of the city, why, is not this to be the place of marshalling on the Day of Judgment, where the gathering together and the appointment will take place? Verily Mecca and Al-Madinah had their superiority by reason of the Kaibra and the Prophet, the blessing of Allah be upon him and his family. But, in truth, on the Day of Judgment both cities will come to Jerusalem, and the excellencies of them all will then be united. O strange, Palestine under the Moslems. Page 85. Illustration, Modern Jerusalem, he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Dan. 1145. Thus Muslim doctrinal teaching and tradition both point out Jerusalem as the rallying place of Muslims before the end, again and again in recent years, as the pressure has threatened the Turkish hold on Constantinople. The thoughts of Muslims have turned toward Jerusalem as a possible capital. A few years ago a Seventh-day Adventist missionary in Constant, 